Isaiah chapter 53 is where we are this morning, and our sermon is called or titled, A Substitute for Sinners, and that's where we began our service today with uh, Pastor Wes reading for us in 1 Peter about Christ taking our place, and we're continuing our series this morning. If it's your first time here or first time watching, we're in a series called Bite-Sized Gospel in which we are seeking to remind ourselves or clarify or maybe even learn for the first time what exactly is the gospel. What is this good news that we we use that term so often, but maybe we don't fully understand all the facets therein. And so we're trying to learn that and uh, remind ourselves of this good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem a wayward people. And so we started two weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3, laying the foundation for why are things the way they are? Why are we the way we are? And why do we need help? And so if you remember from that text, we saw that sin had broken everything and had deeply affected every single one of us, that we have inherited guilt and corruption from Adam. And as a result, we are unable to save ourselves. Despite our best efforts, we cannot save ourselves. We need outside help. And so we left that sermon with this nugget, and that is that we are sinners in need of a savior. Um, but praise God, that Savior is Jesus. And today, when we come to Isaiah 53, we begin to study and see how it is that Jesus saves us. We ended Genesis 3. We, we know we need him, but how is it that he secures our salvation? In this prophecy that was given centuries before Jesus lived, the prophet Isaiah tells of a coming servant who would suffer for his people, and he would suffer in their place, and as a result, he would secure salvation through his own death. Isaiah 53 teaches us how Jesus is a substitute for sinners. He is our substitute. And our strategy this morning is much like we did for Genesis. Uh, we won't camp out on every single verse or even, even look at every single verse necessarily. But what I want to do is to take this text as a whole and ask the question, what does it teach us about the gospel? What facet of all that God has done in Christ do we see taught in this passage? And so our main idea for today is this. This is our gospel nugget, our bite-sized nugget, is this. When Jesus was crucified, he suffered in our place and secured our peace. That's, I think that's simple and short enough we could take that to the neighbors, right? It, he suffered in our place and he secured our peace. Let me pray for our time in the Word together. Our Father in heaven, we pause to ask that you would guide us in this time, that you would speak to us through your word and through your spirit to teach us, give us wisdom to understand, give us humility to receive as we open your word to receive from you, not to bring what we have, but to receive what you have for us. We trust you in this time to do those things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, let's begin this morning with the first of two truths. Two truths that we see from this text, and that is, number one, Jesus suffered in our place. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Isaiah begins here describing our natural condition, our natural activity. He says, all we like sheep have done what? Gone astray. All of us have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We know the truth, and yet we turn from it. We know there's a creator, and yet we turn from him, Paul would say, to worship a creation instead of a creator. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And as a result of our sin or our iniquity, the term is used here in Isaiah 53, we are 
apart from Christ, we are under condemnation and judgment. It's the same thing we learned back in Genesis 3. Because of our sin, we are under judgment. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to suffer the penalty of our sin. Because we choose to sin, we choose to disobey, and therefore we deserve the consequences. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have sinned against God and we stand condemned. That's who we are. But notice the difference here between us and who Jesus is. Look at verse 7. Jesus is unique in that he was sinless. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Quite a striking contrast between the two figures here. You have us who, because of our sin, we stand condemned. And then you have Jesus, perfect and sinless son of God. And he has every right to cast us into hell for eternity. It's well within his right to do so. He would be just in doing so. But what we find here in verses 4 through 6, when you take those two characters, those two traits, and then you read verses 4 through 6, it's nothing short of amazing. Because what we find is that Jesus actually suffered in our place. Let me read those verses again for us. Notice the the pronouns. Notice the difference. Surely he has borne our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds and by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus has no iniquity. He has no sin. He is perfect and sinless. And yet it is all of our sin, all of our iniquity that gets put on him. And at the heart of the gospel is this amazing truth that we see probably nowhere clearer than right here in Isaiah 53 that Jesus suffered in our place. We ended Genesis 3 with this this notion that we get it, we can't do it, we need someone else. We finally come to Isaiah 53 and we find out that someone else is Jesus. And he comes to suffer in our place. We were the ones who deserved to suffer. It was our sin that needed to be punished, not Jesus. He had no sin. It was our penalty to bear, and yet it was Jesus who suffered. Incredible display of love. Jesus, high and lifted up, holy and righteous. And yet he says, you deserve to be punished for your sin. You know what? I will come in and suffer for you. Incredible display of love. It was Jesus who suffered, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, as the righteous for the unrighteous. And this idea or this doctrine of Jesus suffering in our place is what we call the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Pastor Wes mentioned it at the beginning. Substitutionary atonement. Make sure you write this down. Substitutionary atonement. And let me just say, this is not something for seminarians, professors, pastors, the professional Christian. This is something for Christians because this is the Bible. This is what God has done. So please don't be intimidated by the big words. Uh, Don't think it's for somebody else. This is for us because this is biblical truth. And let me give you a definition. It's on the screen. When we talk about substitutionary atonement, this is what we mean. The penalty of sin that we owed 
was paid for by a substitute, Jesus Christ, thereby satisfying the wrath of God. A substitute, you know what that means? It's in a place of someone else. Atonement is a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. Put the two together, we find that it was Jesus who bears our penalty, pays as our substitute, and satisfies the wrath of God. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. He didn't just suffer to suffer. He didn't just suffer for no reason. He suffered as our substitute to make atonement for our sins. Now, when we think about this, we may be asking the question, okay, but why do, why do we need Jesus to do that? Why do I need Jesus to be my substitute? Why can't I just do it? Why can't, uh, or you think about the Old Testament, why can't I just offer a lamb or a sheep or a goat or something like that? Why do we need Jesus as our substitute? The answer is because we need a better sacrifice. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the, the system of sacrifices, people would sin. They would go to the temple. They would bring their goat or the bull or their sheep, and that animal would die for their forgiveness. So the animal dies so that I may live. And in Leviticus chapter 4, which you can go and read later, it's very interesting. Leviticus chapter 4, we see this concept that God institutes where I bring my lamb or my goat for the sacrifice. It's because of my sin. But before it's slaughtered, what I do is you put your hands on the animal. And this signifies that I'm transferring my guilt to the animal. Right? The animal didn't sin. The animal is, is innocent. And yet I transfer symbolically my sin to this animal who then bears the penalty and dies in my place. It dies so that I may live. The problem with that system is that it's insufficient. In fact, the, the writer of Hebrews later on will make the argument that bulls and goats, they can, they can purify the flesh, but they never deal with the content. They never get to the root of the matter. They never get inside. Those sacrifices only offered a temporary reprieve. In fact, Paul describes it in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, as God passing over former sins. I didn't mean he ignored them. It means that the ultimate punishment for those sins would not come until later because there needed to be a better sacrifice. And that better sacrifice is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. In fact, Hebrews 7 through 10, that's your homework, go read that, because he lays out this argument and he comes to this conclusion that Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's the better high priest. He did what that they couldn't do in the Old Testament. And he writes this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says if, if the blood of animals worked to, to sort of sanctify the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the perfect sacrifice, uh, purify our conscience? And then he says in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time <clears throat> Excuse me, those who are being sanctified. Jesus is our better sacrifice. The Old Testament system, it was temporary. It was a shadow. It was a type of one to come. And Jesus is that better sacrifice. Because unlike the Old Testament where they made sacrifices every day and it, was only, it just had to be done over and over and over, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, comes in and makes one sacrifice. 
makes one offering of himself, and he purifies us for all time. Through his one sacrifice of himself, Jesus suffered in our place. And in his suffering and sacrifice, he paid for our sin. He took our judgment upon himself. He bore our penalty. And now get this. The result then is that you and I now can stand before God, not under wrath, not under judgment, not under condemnation, but in peace and forgiveness and love. God looks at us and he doesn't see wrathful, uh, disobedient sinners. He sees his people, his children, whom he has forgiven because a better sacrifice has been made. Now, I don't know if you're like me or not. Um, some of you probably are like me. I don't like asking for help. Uh, my wife, feel free to amen. Um, more so, I don't like needing help. I want to be the one that knows how to do something. So I'm the guy on YouTube figuring out, how in the world do I do this thing so I don't have to call somebody, right? Some of you wives are probably elbowing, right? Yeah, I'm talking about you. So I don't like to ask for help. Maybe it's a guy thing. And so for people like me and maybe some of you, this doctrine may rub us a little bit because it requires us to acknowledge that we need help. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement, it strikes right at the core of that American individualism. I don't need anybody's help. I can figure this out. And yet, we, if you remember from Genesis chapter 3, the, the takeaway was we can't do this. We, we do need help. We are unable to save ourselves. And so our only hope for being saved, our only hope for, the, for me this morning, for you this morning, is to let go of that attitude of, I can do this. I will figure this out. That is prideful individualism and self-reliance. We have to let go of that and instead receive and embrace with humility the free gift of God through Christ's suffering in our place. That's a point of application for us. We either cling to our self-reliance and pride and say, I can do this, I can work harder and make it work, or we embrace with humility what God has done for us. And that's the challenge for us. We can either receive his payment for our sin and be forgiven, or we can stubbornly say, no, I will pay for it myself. I will do it myself. I can do it. The problem with that is if we choose to pay for it ourselves, the answer is we bear that penalty of eternal condemnation. The only hope is to let go. And please forgive me for saying this. Let go and let God. It's, it's, it's often used terribly, but it works here. Let go of your sin. Let go of your pride. Let go of the I have to do it. I can fix this attitude. And let God be the sacrifice. Let him be the one who does it in our place, who suffers in our place and secures our salvation. The second point of application I, I do want to make here is, I said just a few minutes ago that this doctrine is not, it's not just academic. It's not just something that we read about in books and talk about and write fancy papers on. No, this doctrine is personal. Substitutionary atonement is personal. And in order to understand this fully and, and in order to appreciate it entirely, we have to recognize that it was our sin that put him on the cross. Jesus didn't die for some abstract principle of sin, this sort of nebulous floating thought about sin. No, he died for your sin. He died for my sin. You think about your life over the last 24 hours or the last week. 
Every word that dishonors Christ, every action that dishonors him, every attitude that's vengeful or wrathful, every time we treat others as if they aren't made in the image of God, every single one of those is what put him on that cross. Substitutionary atonement is personal. And there's a sense in which it, it drives us to grief, as it should, because it is our sin that put him there. But then there's also a sense in which it drives us to joy, because yes, it was my sin that put him there, but he's on there dying for me, and now I rejoice because he suffered for me. He died for your sins, and he died for mine. That's why we sing things like this. Maybe this sounds familiar from last week. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Or we sing like this, something a bit newer. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is his. It is our sin that put him there. But praise God that he was there to suffer for us. Jesus has suffered in our place. What an incredible display of, of love. You think about, think about us. We, we like to think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. But think about us from the perspective of a holy and righteous God. To step in and do something other than just obliterate and punish, which he would be just to do, but to step in and say, yes, I'll actually suffer. I'll, I'll do the suffering and the punishment. And one step further, it'll actually be my son that does it. That's just incredible display of love. Man, he suffered for us. But not merely to take our place. I think I said this earlier. It's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. It is suffering to purchase for us our salvation. And so our second truth this morning is this. Jesus secured our peace. So he suffered in our place for the purpose of securing our peace. Look again at verse 50, uh, chapter 53, verse 5. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that did what? Brought us peace. The substitutionary work of Christ on the cross secured for us peace. Now, we, we hear this word a lot, I think nowadays, maybe more than others. We talk about peace between warring countries, peace between... Uh, empires and rising you know, nationalities. We talk about peace between political parties. We talk about peace between ideologies, uh, world peace, all these things, peace in our neighborhoods, peace in our country. And while all of these endeavors may be beneficial, all of them strive for a peace that is temporary, a peace that is temporal. It's right now, just in this world, and it's only between people. But when Isaiah the prophet is prophesying here about a suffering servant who brings us peace, he's prophesying about something more than just peace with our neighbors. Something more than just peace within our families, which some of us may need some of that, right? It's more than peace between people. It's something spiritual and something eternal. We have, I think, commonplace in our society this idea that regardless of what you believe about God or whoever's on the cloud, whatever we believe, whatever religion we choose, ultimately, me and the creator, we're okay. 
people, you meet people like this who are either unbelievers or, or maybe they're just sort of nominal Christians, and the general attitude is, well, I know I'm not perfect, I know I do some things and all these things, but I think at the end of the day, God's okay with me. I, I feel like we're okay. And we treat God as if he is the big man upstairs. You hear people use that terminology? This is the big man upstairs. He's, he's looking out for me. Or we, uh, we talk about him as the old grandpa sitting on a cloud playing a harp, just sort of watching things go by. Or we refer to him as the divine watchmaker, the one who built everything, makes the universe, winds it up, lets it go, and then steps back as if no care, no, inter- no interaction, really no concern. But the reality is, based on Scripture, apart from Christ, every single one of us, we are not okay with God. More importantly, God is not okay with us. Apart from Christ, we are at enmity with God. Good Bible word, enmity with God. There is conflict between us and our maker. We are under wrath and condemnation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice he didn't say the annoyance of God is revealed from heaven. Uh, The disappointment of God is revealed from heaven. The slightly concernedness of God is revealed from heaven. No, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Why? Because we are ungodly and unrighteous. So this notion that, well, we're okay. Me and God, you know, Jesus is my homeboy attitude. No, God is wrathful toward us apart from Christ. Jesus himself says in John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's a good word. It remains on him. So it doesn't mean, well, we're sort of neutral, and if we do something bad, then we get wrath. No, wrath is the default. God looks at us apart from Christ with wrath. But the beauty of the gospel message is that the creator who does that, who looks at us with wrath and condemnation, now in Christ welcomes us into a new relationship. And it is one marked by peace. One marked by peace. In his death, Jesus destroys this hostility between God and his people. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, my personal favorite, Paul has made the argument about sin. We're all sinners. We can be justified in Christ. And he comes to chapter 1, verse 5, and says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his atoning work on the cross, Jesus secured for us our most important need, and that is peace with our Creator. Our most important need is not a better life. It's not a better family, a better job, a better paycheck, a better body, a better whatever. Our fundamental need, our greatest need, is peace. We need peace with our Creator. Jesus suffered, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The idea is that, well, we weren't with God, that we were separated, we were estranged, and now we are brought to God by Jesus. We can actually have peace with God. What a thought. What does it look like for peace in the life of the believer? How does having peace and knowing that we have peace with God 
affect daily life as a believer? Because it can kind of seem as like this abstract principle. Oh, we have peace. Now what? Let me give you two points of application for how this, this doctrine, how this reality of having peace with God affects daily life for us as believers. And number one is that we can say with confidence, if we are truly saved, God is not angry with us. God is not angry with us. Maybe you've experienced this. You, you wrong somebody. You know you've done it. You've said something wrong. You've hurt somebody. You've offended them. And so you go to them and you ask for forgiveness. And graciously they say, yes, thank you for coming and telling me. That really hurt. I forgive you. You hug and you go home. And then on the way home you're thinking, what if they really forgave me? Right, I saw something in their eye that just kind of looked like they're holding on to something. I feel like they're still stewing on it, that they're, they sort of, maybe, maybe they just said it, but they're kind of still holding on to something. And oftentimes, I think we apply that to God, and we say, okay, I know I've sinned. I, I come to him, and I confess. I know the Bible says he forgives me, but then I think, well, but does he really? I think about my life over the last week and all the times I was just a horrible failure, and I think, Surely, God's probably sitting up there thinking, okay, God, I know I said I forgave you, but come on. And we have this idea, I think, that we can take with us that, that God is just sitting up on a cloud, just annoyed and angry with us, thinking, come on, guys, get it together. But that's not the case. We may do that in our interactions with others, but God does not do that in his interaction with us. When Jesus suffered on a cross, he took all of God's anger all of his wrath, all of his condemnation and judgment that would have been poured out on us. He didn't take 98% so God can sit up on a cloud and just stew all day long. He took 100%, which means that in our daily life as believers, we don't have to carry around this burden of guilt and shame that says God is just so disappointed with us. And if I just do one more bad thing, well, then that's it. Uh, Just zap him and blast him into hell. No. When you really cling to substitutionary atonement and you really start to get it, it's a weight lifted. Because I realize that every single bit of anger and wrath that God had for me as a sinner has been paid for through Jesus on the cross. Every single bit. God is not angry with us. I don't have to carry around some uh, fabricated attitude in my mind that he's angry. And secondly... We can say that Jesus' atoning work paid for all sin, past, present, and future. Too often times, I think we approach this of, okay, I got saved on Friday, so every sin up to Friday is covered. Praise the Lord. I know that's what he did on the cross. But now from Saturday on, well, now it's on me. I know Jesus paid for my sins and he saved me, but now moving forward, I better make sure I hold up my end of the bargain. I better make sure that I keep walking in this way that he's made me now or I run the risk of losing my salvation or I run the risk of being sent into hell, God changing his mind. But that is not the case. When Jesus suffered on the cross in our place, he did not just commit he did not just pay for sins that we had committed. Paid for sins that we are committing now. Hopefully you're not sinning against me right now, but and sins that we will commit in the future, every single one of them. And what that means for us in daily life as a follower of Jesus is that we don't have to carry with us this attitude of feeling like I just got to keep up my end of the bargain. I just got to keep track of what I did today and and, and make sure I don't do too many bad things because I know he saved me, but I don't know if that covers today. 
Yes, it covers the debt. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, remember what the writer of Hebrews said, is he purified us for all time. Jesus doesn't get the ball rolling and then say, okay, now you take it. No, in his suffering on the cross, he paid for past, present, and future sins. So when we start getting this doctrine, it is freeing in the life of the believer. Because I don't have to carry around a weight of guilt, thinking God is still angry with me. And I don't have to carry around a weight of responsibility, thinking that I still have to keep a certain list of things in order to make God happy. No. Every sin, every wrath, every bit of condemnation, paid for in Jesus. So the question then becomes this morning, do you have peace with God? If you're a follower of Jesus, I can tell you, yes, you have peace. Maybe a second better question would be, do you feel like you have peace? Maybe you know that you're a follower of Jesus, but you are carrying around these these sort of fabricated weights of guilt or responsibility. And maybe for you, the homework is to go and just rest in Isaiah 53 for a few days. Ask the Lord to just press it on your mind. Maybe, maybe there is some broken fellowship, not because of anything that God has, has changed about his view of you, but maybe, we are, maybe you're walking in disobedience or you've got some unconfessed sin and that's weighing on you. The answer to that is to repent and, and trust in the Lord. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I can promise you on the authority of Scripture, you have peace with God. The world may burn around us. Sometimes it seems like it is when you turn on the news. But we have peace with God. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you are not a follower of Jesus, uh, I can tell you again on the authority of Scripture that you don't have peace with God. You may feel like things are okay, but they're not. The only hope to bring peace where there is enmity and to bring spiritual life where there is spiritual death is to receive the salvation that Jesus secures for us on the cross. That's our only hope. It's my only hope. It's your only hope. If you want peace with God, it's found not in this idea, oh, world peace, I need peace, whatever. Peace is a person, and that's Jesus. If you want peace with God, the, the answer is to turn from sin and trust in Christ. Receive with humility what he has done for us. Stop trying, stop working, and receive what Christ has done for us. Now, finally and briefly, before we finish, there, the focus of this passage is substitutionary atonement. But there's a phrase in here in verse 5 that I want to deal with because it has so often been misinterpreted, much to the um, suffering of people. So look at verse 5. We find out in verse 5 here, he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Here we go. And with his wounds, we are what? Healed. We are healed. Seems very straightforward. But there have been preachers through over the years, particularly nowadays with this rise of prosperity preaching, word faith, nonsense, false teaching. There are those who will, based on this, arg this verse, argue that in his atoning work on the cross, yes, he suffered for sins, yes, we have peace with God, but also that guarantees for us physical healing of all our diseases, all our infirmities in this life, if only we have enough faith. That his atoning work, yes, we get sin forgiven, but we also, if we take hold of it, get all of our diseases and physical infirmities healed in this world. Now, let me give you an example of this from one of these um, false teachers that you'll hear on TV. He says this, 
What came on Jesus was not just the whip stripping the flesh off his bare back, but your sicknesses and diseases. Each time he was whipped, every form of sickness and disease, including arthritis, cancer, diabetes, bird flu, and dengue fever, came upon him. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He says, today healing is your right, because Jesus has paid the price for your healing. So if the devil says you cannot be healed, just declare, Jesus has paid for my healing. uh, Disease has no right to be in my body. I am healed in Jesus' name. What if you're not healed? You know, the the cleverness of this sort of teaching is that there's no way to challenge it. If I go to one of these preachers and I say, look, my back is still killing me. Been praying for weeks. Still hurts. What's the answer? Oh, well, you just don't have enough faith. Right? There's no challenge to the, the, the teaching. The answer is always, well, you just don't have enough faith. It's your right if you'll just take hold of it. Maybe you're sinning too much. Maybe you need to let go of some things. But it's your right. Just take hold of it. And that is not the case. When Isaiah prophesies that through Jesus' death on the cross, we would be healed, this healing is referring to a spiritual healing. That is our greatest need. Jesus' death heals our broken spiritual relationship with God. Our greatest need is not to have our physical ailments healed. Our greatest need is to have our souls healed. It's not about physical ailments. Look, I, I'm fairly young, and I've got some ailments that I would love to get rid of. But my greatest need is not that I don't get another migraine. My greatest need is that I have peace with God because my soul is healed and I am alive in Christ. That's my greatest need. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul teaches us that prior to Christ, he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't sickly. We weren't weak. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. It won't be cancer. It won't be heart disease. It won't be coronavirus. And it won't even be physical death that keeps us out of the kingdom. It will be spiritual death. That is what we need to overcome. We need to be born again. We need to be made new in Christ. And that's exactly what happens when we are converted. And that only happens because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Christ's atoning work on the cross, it does not guarantee physical healing in this life. I'd love to stand up here and say it does, but it just doesn't. I think all of us in this room could testify to that. Anybody in here 100% perfectly well right now? Very few of us, maybe the children. The rest of us, we've got something. His atoning work doesn't guarantee for us physical healing because that wasn't his, the point. That wasn't the mission of it. Christ's mission was to die as a substitute for our sins, securing for us peace with God now and eternal life in the future in a place where death and disease and aches and pains and infirmities will have no home. That's what we wait for. We don't come to Christ saying, okay, heal all my diseases right now and then I'll follow you. No, we come to have our souls healed in hope of a day coming when all of these other things will be made new as well. And that's why the older I get and the further we go in life, as things just seem to crumble around us, I long for that day. Trumpet's going to sound. Jesus coming back. What a world. What a world to live in. No suffering and no death. That will be in the future. This doctrine of substitutionary atonement, it may seem complex. And to be fair, uh, all the thousands of books have been written about it over the years. But it is actually quite simple. 
doesn't take a PhD in theology to understand it because it boils down to something like this. When Jesus was crucified, he suffered in our place and he secured our peace. It's as simple and yet profound as that. He suffered in our place and he secured our peace. Let me leave you with the words of John Newton, the great British uh, hymn writer who gave us Amazing Grace, also wrote this one. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw, his, uh, I saw my sins his blood has spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I die that you may live. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled. My heart is filled to think he died. Our Father in heaven, we uh, may we be like John Newton, say that our heart is thrilled, our soul is filled to think you died for us. May we leave this place today rejoicing in this work. May we leave today rejoicing that it is not our penalty to bear anymore because it has been uh, borne by Christ. And may we leave today in the confidence that this doctrine brings to us that we leave today in perfect peace with our Creator if we know Christ. No need to take home any guilt, no need to take home any uh, sense of burden or responsibility. We walk out free in Christ. We rejoice in the work that you have done. You suffered in our place, you secured our peace. Continue to strengthen us and guide us, help us to live in light of this. Live in light of this now as we serve you and as we wait for that day when, when all things will be healed. We wait for that day, but help us now in this time to enjoy and to rest in the peace that we have with you. We love you, we praise you, and now we sing to you in response in Christ's name.